Welcome to Bringing Truth to Life. My name is Henry Clay, and we hope you enjoy this series of messages on the Reformed faith. Back when I was baptized, I was actually christened. Have, how many have heard of christenings? Okay, some Episcopalians out there. But that's their term for baptizing in the Anglican Church in Naples, Italy. Now, why do people do that? Why do you take babies and put water on their head? For years in, in my own life, and for those of you who were baptized as a child, many of you were, it meant nothing to me. I remember, for example, when I was 12 and my parents gave me a Bible for Christmas, and I was so disappointed. I thought, what an unuseful present, you know? You can't have fun with it. You have to take care of it. It's too boring to read. It's got your name and gold on it, so you can't give it away or sell it. But sure enough, when I was 17, I fell in love with Jesus Christ, and my life has never been the same. So I want to talk to you today about the baptism, and particularly uh, the baptism of infants. Let's start off first by talking about what it does not mean. It does not mean that we believe that the child is born again, and that is a complete Christian in that sense of having made a conscious profession of faith. It does not absolutely guarantee that they will grow up to embrace the faith. It's not some sort of a thing that absolutely obligates them to someday believe. And it's not just a ritual, on the other hand. That's just something those strange Christians or Presbyterians do. They just, every once in a while, will drag a baby up there and wet them on the head, you know. Uh, the Bible communicates to us that it is a means of grace. And you're thinking, what does that mean? And, and uh, maybe the best way I can explain that is it's like it's a channel of blessing. It's one of the ways that God touches earth in touching an individual's life. Because when we do the Lord's Supper, everybody that's a member of the church and baptized partakes of that. But we don't get everybody to come up here every time and wet everybody on the head. There's this one time in your life that you're baptized, and it's, it's more of an individual kind of a thing. The term means of grace is used in the, talk, in the Westminster documents. It says there, there are things that once you become a Christian that help you grow. It's a way different channels by which God gets his grace to your life to help you help you grow up in Him. And four mentioned in the Westminster Catechism. It says the, the Word of God, the Bible, is one of those in prayer. And those are both individual and public. You hopefully read your Bible and pray in your own house, but also in every service that we have, we have the Word of God and prayer. And then there's baptism and the Lord's Supper, and those are only done in a public setting, in the setting of worship. You're not supposed to be there by yourself in your bathroom, baptizing yourself. You're not supposed to, in your quiet time, to serve the Lord's Supper. That's because it's an expression of the body of Christ. And so we want to focus particularly on baptism tonight and the way that Presbyterians and Reformed doctrine people have understood this. Doesn't mean we're necessarily right. We all see through a glass darkly, the Bible says, and we respect people's right to disagree. And on some things where you see a fair amount of 
range of disagreement among churches. It might be in terms of the end times or mode of baptism or some things like that. My opinion on that is everything that God wanted to be crystal clear, he made crystal clear. Across all of Christendom, for example, everyone believes that Jesus is the Son of God, died on the cross to forgive our sins and things like that. He says it enough times and enough ways clearly so that everybody's clear on it. But on the things that he didn't go into as much detail, then that leaves room for interpretation and differences of opinion. Now, where does baptism come from? We believe it's the sign of the new covenant. It's the way you enter in to the people of God. And since we believe that God doesn't change, and the, the, he is the same God in the Old Testament as he is in the New Testament, we see a parallel between the way they would have sealed the covenant in the Old Testament with, this, with the symbol of circumcision. It was the sign of the covenant of the Old Covenant. The Old Testament means the Old Covenant. So let's look at a verse in, in Genesis 17. Nine, Genesis 17, starting in verse 9. It says, Then God said to Abraham, as for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised. So you see, they're not waiting till the age where he can say, yes, I want to be a Jewish person. I want to eat kosher. He can't say anything. He's just eight days old. Uh, but he was to be circumcised. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So this was there. This was the doorway into being part of the people of God in the Old Testament. And then we see in the example of Moses, we get an idea of how important was this ritual or rite that they would practice with the circumcision. In Exodus 4, we have this strange story of Exodus 4, 24 through 26. As they, Moses has, God spoken to Moses through the burning bush and says, I want you to go and set my people free, go back and talk Pharaoh into letting them go. And as they're on their way back, of course, by this time he's married, he has a son. Apparently, he had not circumcised that son, even though that was what the law God had given to Abraham. Maybe because his wife, Zipporah, wasn't Jewish and thought this was a strange idea and didn't really agree, and she won the argument. We don't know why. But it says, at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. But Zipporah, his wife, took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. I think that means she wasn't happy. So the Lord let him alone. At that time, she said, bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. But what we see there is Moses, for whatever reason, had disobeyed God, had not had his son circumcised. And even though he was God's main man, God wasn't happy with him. It, and it even says that he was getting sick as though he were going to die under the discipline of the Lord. So we see in the Old Testament how seriously God took this. This wasn't a, a suggestion, as they say, the, it's not the Ten Suggestions, it's the Ten Commandments. And if, he, if God is God, then we need to respond uh, 
to his authority and what he asks us to do. And in the New Testament, he's told us that we are to baptize. Let's talk a little bit about it. Baptism is a sign and a seal of the covenant of grace. So let's talk about what does that mean that baptism is a sign. And I've got a couple of examples here that help me. Might not be spot on, but this is my, this, like I said, this is, this is the way, how far I've gotten in understanding it. First, when we say baptism is a sign, it's like a signature. In fact, if you look at the word signature, it's a signature. It has to do with signing on the dotted line. It's what you would do like on a contract or something. Secondly, it's like a, a brand mark. You know, when you, in the Old West, they would buy animals, and, and since they didn't necessarily have them all fenced off, you had to be able to figure out which were yours if, they got mixed, if your cow got mixed in with the other cow. So you would heat up some design of some metal and, and burn it into the cow's hide so that you could see, oh, this is, yeah, this is a clay cow here. And this is a Red Sanders cow over there, so we could, you know, separate the cows out. And so I think uh, baptism serves somewhat like a brand mark that those that have been baptized in a, in a special way, they have been claimed for Christ by the people of God. You know, the devil has many ways that he brands people. Child abuse or different ways where he wounds and marks a life early on, even before they've been able to really decide what they want to believe and where they want to go. They're touched early in their lives and it inclines them toward evil. And the church wants to touch infants and incline them toward what is good and right and true. In Revelation, it talks about the mark of the beast, which is 666, and we're not going to get into all of that. But I believe that baptism is the mark of the blessed God. That even though his hair will dry... And tomorrow, there won't be any physical sign that he was baptized today. You could probably do an intense study of his head and not find any trace of our having baptized him today. And yet, I think that before God and before the angels and before the demons, they can see each person say, yes, that one was baptized, that one was never dedicated, that one was. Why do I think that? In many countries of the world, there's more overt uh, spiritual warfare, sometimes even what you would call demonic oppression or possession. And some of the most difficult cases to be set free and delivered from demonic oppression were those that were dedicated to Satan as a child. And you think, well, yeah, but they didn't say, well, I would like to be dedicated to the devil. They didn't say that. It just happened to them, and yet it, it, somehow it opens up a huge door for the enemy in their lives when the most important adults in their life offer him up to the enemy. You think, why would anybody do that? But anyway, we're not going to get into that. But just to say, if our God is a million, million times greater than the devil could ever be, how could we think that by baptizing a child it means almost nothing? It means almost everything. It inclines them, particularly if the parents are truly doing it in faith. Uh, it is the mark of the blessed God. And third, it serves as a signpost. 
When we say it's a sign, you also think in terms of a stop sign, or we just drove to Raleigh, and so it says Raleigh, 100 miles. You don't stop at the sign and say, well, well, here's the sign. It says Raleigh, so we're there. It says, no, no, it says Raleigh, 100. That means it's 100 more miles to go. This is just a sign. And so baptism isn't salvation in itself, but it's a sign that points to the need to be cleansed by the blood of Christ and renewed by the Holy Spirit. I think of it also kind of like a tattoo. It's like an indelible mark on your soul that you have been dedicated to God, if it's a, as an infant or a child, by your believing parents, and if it's an, an adult, uh, based on your own profession of faith before the body of Christ. Now, when you get a tattoo, you don't have to necessarily tattoo your whole body to say you're tattooed. I mean, what if you tattooed 90% of your body and there's a spot that's not tattooed? They say, oh, you're not tattooed. I found a hole. You've got to fill this in too, you know. No, I mean, just one little tattoo, you're tattooed. So in terms of, uh, you say, well, that wasn't enough water to cover his whole body. Oh, it was enough to tattoo his soul. That mark will be there forever. Secondly, baptism is like a seal. What's well, a seal? Well, we're not talking about the animal, a seal. One example would be like a seal on a letter. Now, we don't do that anymore, but I was given a ring by my father. Walt, Walt wears it now, but it's got one of those impressions, like a crest in it. And so you would melt the wax when you were sealing a, a letter or, a, or putting your sign on the bottom of an important document. And then you'd press the ring into the wax uh, as a seal. Now this particular seal that you see up there is the seal of the Jesuits. But the idea of a seal is not just, well, this document would look better with wax on it. It's that it's a symbol of authority. And it's not just a piece of paper. And if it's uh, sealed with a seal, it means it's not to be broken except by the person who's authorized. And it's also not to be taken lightly. So that's one, one idea in terms of the seal, that baptism is like a seal on that person of God's authority. God told us to do that, and it means something to God and should mean a lot to us. Second, when we talk about baptism being a seal, it also is a seal in the sense that there's a freshness seal on jars. You know, in, in the inside of lids, they've got that little plasticky thing or, or waxy thing, and you screw on the lid real tight, and it keeps the stuff fresh. And so, in a sense, a baptizing of a child puts a freshness seal on them till the day when Jesus Christ opens the lid and pours his Holy Spirit into their lives. And third, I like to think about it like it's a tracking device. Beep, 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 beep. So, even though he's not looking for God, he's maybe even running from God like I was. There's beep, beep, beep. There he goes. Let's go get him that in a sense, it, uh, it sicks God on our child. Just like, you know, you have a, I'm not saying God's a dog or anything, but we used to have some wonderful pets. And, and you know, you'd, my particular dog, Laurie, who was a border collie, loved to chase squirrels. So if we would see a squirrel, we would get her attention and, and sick her on the squirrel. She'd never catch them, of course, because they're too quick and too close to trees. But, uh, but when you baptize your child, you're basically saying, God, Go get them for good, 
for blessing for what is good and right and true and holy in the midst of a world of wolves that want to destroy this child. Lord, we're letting you have first dibs on them. Now why infants? Why would we baptize a baby? One is that God cares about all ages. God isn't just interested in you once you figure things out. If you love babies as much as you do, how much more does God look at a baby and say, isn't he adorable? Of course, God made him that way. But God cares about all ages. Uh, babies aren't things that you just kind of have hanging around a while until they get big enough to understand things. It says, okay, now you can come in the club. It says, no, we bring them in the club right off the bat. Now they need to then decide if they're going to stay in the club, but we're going to go ahead and bring them in. God cares about all ages. Second, God loves and saves families. When God came to Abraham, to give him those promises. He says, this isn't just for you, Abraham. This is for you and all of your descendants. It's for your seed. And in that verse we read in the service, in the baptismal service, in the book of Acts, when they preach the gospel, they say, and this promise is for you and your children. Now that's a wonderful thing to claim for your family, isn't it? God loves and saves families. And third, salvation is ultimately at God's initiative. So the people say, well, no, you should not baptize a child because they have not yet been able to consider everything and make their decision and say, yes, I believe. The Reformed understanding of the scripture is that salvation is mostly at God's initiative. That he's the one that has chosen those who, from before the foundation of the earth, who will be saved and then he regenerates us, he, he wakes us up, and it's at that point we realize, hey, yeah, that does sound pretty good. I think I do believe, I think I do want Jesus Christ. So that if you have turned to Christ truly in your heart, one thing you can know for certain is, is that God got there first. That he's the one that got you into all of this, that woke you up, that g gave you that interest in spiritual things. It's not dependent. Salvation is not dependent on the person understanding at that moment. So that's why we baptize babies. And fourth, why do we do it by sprinkling? Why don't we get a bigger tub here? And we could baptize them all over, like that tattooing all over. We could just plunge them down there. We could get a little mask, you know, with oxygen so they wouldn't drown. Uh, why don't we plunge them completely under the water? Well, it's because the water symbolizes two things. One, it represents the blood of Christ that cleanses. And in the Old Testament, they would never fill up a basin of blood and plunge people under it. Now, some of the Baptist hymns, I was in a Baptist church very happily for four years. So I'm not saying anything bad about anybody. But um, there was this one song that he plunged me, plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood. I'm talking about the blood of Christ, like it was a big bathtub. But actually, the way they would apply the blood to people in the Old Testament was the animal, they would cut the animal's throat, they would hold a basin under its neck, now maybe that's more details than you want, and catch the blood, and then they would dip a branch from a bush 
I think it was normally the hyssop bush. They would dip a branch in there, and then they would sprinkle it on everybody like that. So, I mean, people are kind of, you know, kind of getting it in their eye, and uh, you have to probably wash when you get home, but that's how they would sprinkle the blood on people. So, I mean, you'd get a couple of uh, drops or something. It was sprinkled on, but that was enough. Now, why was that enough? Because to be forgiven before God, God had said in the Old Testament, the soul that sins must die. But God had made another way that if you had sinned, there was another alternative. If by faith uh, you offered the sacrifice and, and that animal died in your place as such, then they sprinkled you with the blood. It's as though... Looking at you, it looks like you got shot or something. You're kind of splattered with blood. So he said, okay, somebody died. It's okay. And the New Testament explains, well, that was actually never really enough to take away sin, but it was looking forward to Jesus who would come and make a perfect sacrifice and that we would be sprinkled with his blood and the Father would say, justice has been satisfied. Someone has died for those sins. This person may go free. So it symbolizes the blood that cleanses, and that was always administered by sprinkling. And secondly, it represents the Holy Spirit coming to us to regenerate us. That means make you a new person and renew you. And the, all the verses in the Old Testament that talk about the Holy Spirit coming, it's not like the flood, you know, that you're like in a big ocean of the Holy Spirit. It says, when the Holy Spirit will be poured out from on high. That's why we believe in baptism by sprinkling or pouring, because it represents the blood and, the, and it represents also the Holy Spirit being poured out. So, well, there we have it. That's Henry's short course on infant baptism. But I wanted to talk just a second as we close about what's the big idea about all of this. I grew up thinking that church was just that. It was just kind of... Be religious. Go do the things that religious people do. You only have to do it an hour a week. If you're really into it, maybe two. And sometimes they'll serve a meal and stuff. And, uh, you know, if you're the youth, they'll get comfy chairs and a pool table or something. But I found it kind of boring and wondered why does... Why does anybody really want to do it? Now, obviously, they don't want to do it too much because even my dad didn't really want to go in the summers, want to take it off, take summer off. So I thought, well, they're just barely into it, and everybody looks so bored in the church I grew up in. So one time I told my dad, I said, uh, I, I was about 15, I said, well, I think I've decided not to go to church anymore. That's when I found out it was obligatory in my household to go to church, so I continued to go to church. One time... I, I would always drag my feet, though, and one day I drugged my feet so much that I came out the front door just in time to see my dad drive off, and he didn't even look. I think he knew I'd come out the door. He didn't even look, just drove right off. It's not as though I really wanted to go, but I didn't want to be left either. That was sort of insulting. But I always wondered, why do people do that? Uh, why do, what's this garnish on the plate? Have you ever had parsley garnish or something like that? And you think, well, what do you, do you, do people eat this? And to me, that's what sort of religion was like. That it, it wasn't enough to be a meal, but it was, everybody seemed to think it ought to be on the plate. 
And the big idea about baptism, the Lord's Supper, and church is it's all about this ancient covenant of grace that God has made with his people. God has entered into an agreement, a formal agreement and a covenant with those that are his people. And what does that covenant mean? A covenant is a solemn promise, a solemn agreement between two people uh, for some particular ends. And in this case, God made an agreement that he would work it out for us to, even if we had sinned, and we all have, he would work it out some way for us to get out of jail for free. Now, it wasn't free for God. It cost his only son. But there's a, a passage I've got. It says, Throughout the biblical record of God's administration of this covenant, a single phrase recurs as the summation or summary of the covenant relationship. What is it that comes up again and again through the whole Bible? He says, I shall be your God and you shall be my people. This phrase may be designated as the Emmanuel principle of the covenant. The heart of the covenant is the declaration that God is with us. God is with us. So the, the heart of the covenant isn't be religious. It's that God says, once you enter into this covenant, as we brought this child into the covenant today, that it's God's intention that Luke will belong to him, and he will belong to Luke. And everyone in here who's been baptized, it's not just that you're a, a fan of God. You know, I mean, maybe you went to a football game yesterday, and you may be very happy or very sad. But you were just sitting there in a the stand, and I mean, frankly, almost nobody knew you were there, but you were there cheering your team on. A lot of people feel like Christianity is kind of like that. You just kind of show up, you're just one of the little dots out there and nobody necessarily, not too many people even know you are there. But that's not the way the covenant is. The covenant is, is that it's, it's as though you married God. That you have become an eternal, what is it, BFF, best friends forever. That something has happened where you have linked up with God personally to belong to him forever, and also that he's going to belong to you forever. Now, in applying the, uh, these things as we close here, I just want to say a couple of things. If your child has not been baptized, and you are uh, a believing parent and a member of this church, it's not too late. We're still taking applications. We would love to. Now that you understand it, this would be a great time. We'd love to baptize your child in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and put that brand, spiritual brand mark on them and sick God on them. Secondly, those of you who have children that have been baptized, did you hear those promises that they made today that you made when you baptized your children? Those are some pretty heavy promises, aren't they? Always set a good example for them? Huh. Well, that's one down. Maybe, maybe they're getting into the Bible. Maybe you're praying for them. Are you praying for them? Do you pray for them every day? What are you praying for them? I'm praying for my kids, for example. They're uh, 
you know, in college, getting out of college. I'm praying, of course, for their spouses. I'm praying that God will bring spouses into their life that love God so much that it, it will force my children to upgrade their spiritual life and their devotion to Christ. But think of some good things to be praying for your kids. What are you teaching them? How are you doing in fulfilling your vows that you made when you baptized that child? A third, some of you here, you're not even sure how you ended up here. You just kind of, maybe you just got invited. You just, this is your first or second time. If it's your second time, congratulations, you came back. But we're just delighted you're here. And we would love for you to have an encounter, a wonderful encounter, a close encounter with the living God through Jesus Christ. It's not a complicated thing. I sat on the floor in someone's living room in Marion, Alabama when I was 17 years old and understood almost nothing other than that there was a God and you could know him through Jesus Christ. And while everyone else was singing, I looked up at the ceiling where you figure God's up there somewhere, and I said, Lord, I don't know if you're there, but if you are, not a whole lot of faith to start off with, but you've got to start somewhere. In case you're there, if anybody's up there, I'd really like to know you. But my whole life began to shift around, and I encourage you tonight also, if you haven't had that close encounter with God, that you would call out to him. The Bible says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a great promise. Everyone. Yes, you as well. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And finally, all of you who are baptized, I wonder what it means to you. I wonder if you can feel the brand mark of the, the mark of the blessed God on your life. Do you feel like you're married to God or are you just dating him? Or maybe a blind date or maybe just a mild acquaintance. He wants you to know him intimately. What does he mean to you? You know, you mean everything to him. Isn't that amazing? He thinks about you all the time, the Bible says. He's made sure you had plenty of air to breathe today. You probably, as if, if it's like other days, maybe ate a little bit too much and all of it was there to eat. Most of your, your body, if not all of your body, worked today. You probably had a couple of people say nice things to you today, maybe even give you a hug. You didn't have a wreck coming here or you wouldn't be here. You probably didn't even have a flat tire. All the different things that God took care of today, and you maybe didn't even thank him once. Maybe you even complained. Maybe you're even running from him. Maybe you slap him around because you're disappointed with God. He's serving you, helping you, blessing you. He sent Jesus Christ to die for you. He's holding you in his arms, and you're slapping him and spitting in his face. Or are you really falling more in love with him? Are you seeking him? Do you have a time every day where you just get with him to think about him? I don't mean just to be religious. This is, well, you're supposed to read your Bible and pray every day, so I'll do that. It says, date God. Make a time to be with him each day. I heard a message when I was 20, no, I, was, I guess I was 19 years old about having a time each day to read your Bible and pray. 
it so hit me because I had already planned on not doing it. It was during the summer. And I had to be at work at 7.15 in the morning. I knew it was just too early to get up to do that. So I was, I was I mean, I was sorry, you know, but I wasn't going to do it. And I, I heard this message and I thought, I can't not do it. Next morning I set my alarm for 5.30 and got up and had my first meeting with God. And it's been the single most important thing in my whole life is dating God each day. Of getting a time just to be with Him. Sometimes, most of the time I read, it doesn't matter what you do. So much as, are you seeking His face? Are you trying to get to know Him? He says, if you really, really seek me, He says, guess what? I promise me, you'll find me. Don't give up. Yeah, I've tried that. I got bored. Try something else. Try it at a different time. It, you know, but... But keep seeking God. Well, I want you to stand now as we close in prayer. Just close your eyes. Do you feel like you're close to God tonight? I want you to just to keep your eyes closed, but just kind of look up toward the ceiling in your heart and and I want you to repeat something after me if you have trusted in Christ in your heart. Just look up to God and say, I am yours. Say it out loud. I am yours. You are mine. I belong to you. You belong to me. I am your child. You are my father. And we'll be friends forever. Lord, I just pray right now in the name of Jesus that the, the, the truths of this covenant of grace, this ancient promise that somehow has made its way to us and inflamed our hearts with a love for God, that you would wake us up, Lord. That you would stir us up to a deeper eagerness to touch eternity with our souls to sense the embrace of God in our lives. Lord, we're tired of being skeptical and apathetic and distracted. Lord, we want to find you in a fresh way. And we pursue the promises that were spoken over us at our baptism to belong to the Lord forever, that God is with us and we declare it in our hearts. And we pray for our children, Lord. We pray that our children from a young age might say, I must be about my father's business, just like Jesus did when he was only 12. I pray that our children would say, I don't have time for the world's evil joys. Life is too precious to flush it down the toilet of casual sex and recreational drugs. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Lord, we dedicate ourselves afresh to you. We remember the moment of our baptism as though it were yesterday. And we say, Lord, in the name of the Father, and in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit, I belong to you. And all of heaven belongs to me. Thank you, Lord. We bless you today and worship you. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Thanks for joining us on Bringing Truth to Life. If you like our content, please subscribe and give us a review. This helps more people find our podcast. 